me first. Those can be selfish words. In most instances, we want to prefer other people before ourselves. We should not have a self-serving attitude, and it shouldn't be me first, but we should be thinking about others. But today, we are in a me first passage. In this instance, before we think about others, we're to think about ourselves. Before we pass judgment on other people, we should first be passing judgment upon ourselves. One of my favorite verses comes from the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, Ezra was a priest. And uh, he was one of the individuals that led the children of Israel back uh, from exile to Jerusalem. And the scripture says that the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. And Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. I've always appreciated that verse because it teaches us the proper order of things. First, he studied the Word of God. Secondly, he sought to apply the Word of God to himself. And then he sought to help others understand the Word of God as well. We need to respond to the Word of God. We are to allow the Word of God to pass judgment upon ourselves. And we need to be careful in our response or attitude towards the Word of God. Have you ever sat and listened to a message and said to yourself, I wish so-and-so would have been here to hear that? That's just what somebody else over here needs. I hope they're listening. Or maybe even praying that their eyes would be opened and they would be receiving what is given from the Word of God. Well, there's some place for that, but certainly before that, we should be thinking about how the Scripture applies to ourselves. And rather than just thinking about how other people need the instruction of the Word of God, we should begin with understanding how we need the instruction from the Word of God. At first glance, it might seem as though this portion of scripture on judgment just kind of comes out of the blue. Remember, this is a part of a continuing sermon that Jesus has given, the Sermon on the Mount. And as I say, it may almost sound as though it has very little to do with what precedes, but follow the reasoning. Jesus had said that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he said to his disciples, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then went on to give six examples of how the teaching of the Pharisees did not go far enough in their understanding of the righteousness that the law required. After giving these six examples of how their teaching didn't go far enough, he then illustrated how their practice of righteousness did not go far enough. They were doing their alms, their good deeds, in order to be seen and praised by men, as opposed to a pure motive of serving God. Then Jesus has 
a rebuke. It would be easy for the disciples at this point to begin to get a little puffed up. These Pharisees were held in high regard. And they are being taught that their righteousness actually exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They also might think from listening to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees and in their instruction that their righteousness doesn't go far enough that they may become judgmental in their attitude, that they might develop an air of supremacy, that they might feel spiritually superior to the Pharisees. So Jesus warns them that they are not to judge lest they be judged. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. So what in the world does that mean? What is the prohibition that Jesus is setting forth and what are its ramifications? People often quote this verse and say, well, we should not judge. But what does that mean? There are two basic ways in which the word judge or judgment can be used. It can be used in the sense of moral discernment. The analyzing and evaluating of moral conduct and behavior. The second way in which the word judge can be used is to be critical, fault-finding, and condemnatory. It is in this second sense that the scripture teaches us that we are not to judge. We are not to be critical, fault-finding, and condemnatory. But we certainly are to be analytical. We certainly are to evaluate. And we need to practice moral discernment. This passage does not move us into ethical relativism as though godliness does not matter. Rather, we are to hold to high moral standards. We are to practice analysis. We are to use discernment. And we are to make moral determinations between right and wrong. You can even see in the passage that is before us in verse 6, it says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine. So there has to be discernment. What are the dogs? Who are the swine? So it's not against discernment, but it is opposed to this critical condemning spirit. So the theme this morning is, We are not to be critical and fault-finding in our dealings with others, but rather we are to be discerning and helpful. Let me say that again. We are not to be critical and fault-finding in our dealings with others, but rather we are to be discerning and helpful. Just two points this morning, but many sub-points. The first point is we are not to be critical and fault-finding in dealing with others. And so Jesus provides us with some things to keep in mind so that we not become critical or fault-finding in dealing with others. The first thing to keep in mind is that the manner and standard by which we judge others 
will be the manner and standard by which they will judge us. Notice Matthew 7, verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Judged by whom? Judged by God or judged by others? And I would submit to you, both. Both. First, the way that we judge others will, in fact, affect the way that God judges us. If we are not gracious with others, God will not be gracious with us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, in this very same uh, sermon, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray and says in verse 12, Forgive us our debts, as also we have forgiven our debtors. Now look at verse 14 of Matthew 6. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Furthermore, when we find fault in others and then do the very same thing, we prove ourselves to be guilty before God. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So in other words, in pointing out other people's faults, we, in fact, give testimony to the idea that that is improper, that behavior is wrong. And if we are going to judge or find fault in other people's behaviors, and then we turn around and do the very same thing, it makes us even more accountable before God, demonstrating our understanding of the truth and our lack of practice of that truth. Now, when it says you will not be judged, certainly we cannot escape God's judgment totally. We have to stand before God and give an account. Further, the standard by which God is going to judge us is ultimately the word of God. We're going to be judged according to the scriptures. But the way that we judge others will, in fact, be a part of the criteria that God uses in judging us. The point is that we are not to be judges of the law, but we're to be doers of the law. Secondly, the manner and standard in which we judge others will be the manner and standard by which they judge us. Verse 12 of Matthew 7. Therefore, however, you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. The way in which we respond to others is the way in which they respond to us. If you're going to point out someone's fault, if you're going to chide someone for losing their temper, guess what's going to happen when you lose your temper? Certainly that's going to be thrown back into your face. Uh, They're going to hold you accountable. 
If we treat other people harshly, they're going to treat us harshly. If we are fault-finding, they are going to be fault-finding with us. But, in turn, if we are gracious with others, they will be gracious with us. Second thing to keep in mind, so that we do not become critical and fault-finding, is that it is possible to be blind to our own faults. Notice verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It is amazing how easy it is to see the faults in other people when that very same fault can be resident with ourselves. Now there's a, a play on word here. The word for speck in verse 3 is really a small bit of sawdust. A small bit of sawdust. And notice the play on words. You're trying to remove a small bit of sawdust from somebody else's eye while you've got the big log in your own eye. So it has the connotation of trying to help somebody else with their struggle in the very same area that you have your struggle. Except that you far more than they. Can that actually be? And the answer is, yes, it can. We can be blind to our own faults. Third thing to keep in mind, so we do not become critical in fault-finding, is that moral scrutiny and transformation should begin at home. Notice verses 4 and 5. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Wherein does the hypocrisy lie? Why does it say you hypocrite? You hypocrite. What is is hypocritical here? What is, the word for hypocrite here is literally to play a part, like an actor. What part is the individual playing? Well, it is in coming across that we have our lives completely in order. We have our lives completely in order. We feel free to offer help to others, for we find no shortcoming in our own lives. Notice verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye. We want to help somebody else overcome a problem that we have in our own life, and in this instance, even in greater measure. The scripture says there's there's something wrong with that. Again, it's the problem of viewing oneself as morally superior to another. However, we are to be discerning and helpful. That's point number two. We are to be discerning and helpful. We are to be helpful. And how can we be helpful? Excuse me. And we can be helpful in removing specks from other people's eyes. Notice verse five. 
you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's not against helping a brother take the speck out of their eye. It's, but get rid of the log in your own eye first. Get rid of the log in your own eye first. Practical question. If we can be blind to our faults, and we can see clearly in someone else a failure that we actually have, even in a greater way, what can protect us from trying to remove a speck in someone else's eye while we have a log in our own eye? What rule of thumb can we use to make sure that we don't enter into that kind of behavior? I think the key is found in verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is in your own eye? The person says, and I believe well-meaningly, let me take the speck out of your eye. Let me help you, brother. I see you struggle in this area. Let me mentor you. Let me disciple you. Let me instruct you. Let me teach you. Let me be a help to you. I submit that what can guard us is not you're approaching a brother or sister and offering to give them spiritual advice and tutelage, but rather waiting for them to come to you. Seeking your advice. Seeking your tutelage. Seeking your help. Let them practice the discernment of knowing who it is that they can go to that will really be a help to them. Who do you go to for advice? Who do you seek out for counsel? The scripture says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. We look for those kind of people. People who are planted by the river. People who are bearing fruit. People who are demonstrating spiritual maturity and development. Those are the people we seek out. Those are the people that we are looking for their advice. So, a bit of unsolicited advice. Don't give unsolicited advice. Don't walk up to someone and begin to instruct them in how to live the Christian life until they've invited you to do so. 
otherwise, it is a bit presumptuous. It is a bit arrogant. Let me help you with this. Just might be a problem there. Secondly, we are to be discerning in judgment. We are to know who to listen to and who not to listen to. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. Being discernment and judgment. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. The scripture encourages us to examine people who are going to instruct us and teach us in the word of God and see whether or not their lives are in conformity with what they say. And if it's not, you are not to listen to them. That requires discernment. That requires judgment, if you will. The scripture's not against our analysis in our evaluation of moral teaching, truth, and living. More about that when I get to verse 15. That's not in my passage, but I want to use that to give us the context of what this is discussing. But now we look at a, uh, a greater issue. But before we get there, This passage teaches us that we're to be discerning in whom we try to help. Verses 5 to 6 refer to helping a brother. Notice verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's talking about our involvement with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Verse 6 moves to a focus upon non-believers, people who reject the truth. Now notice what it says in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and and, and turn and tear you to pieces. So who... are the dogs. Who are these people? And again, it's going to require discernment. Because if they're a dog, you're supposed to treat them differently. So who are the dogs? Jesus referred to a Canaanite woman as a dog. Listen to this passage, Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. 
But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Kind of a harsh statement. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's saying, Yes, I'm a dog. But even dogs get to eat the crumbs, the leftovers, from the table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done unto you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. I'll make more comment on that when I go to the second example. Paul referred to unconverted Jews as dogs. Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Sounds harsh. But we need to understand what is being said in this passage. When we think of a dog, we may think of a household pet. We may think of that nice creature that uh, we love to pet and to play fetch with and all those kinds of things. But in the New Testament era, dogs didn't tend to be pets. They tended to be wild, ferocious dogs that hunted in packs. And they were vicious. They were ferocious. And they would attack individuals. Something like a pit bull on steroids. They were bad news. Jesus is referring to people who attack the word of God. For notice what it says about them. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Pearls. Pearls. Pearls are the blessings of the kingdom. Remember in Matthew chapter 13, we have the pearl of great price. That individual who looked at the kingdom and saw it of such value that he was willing to sell everything they had. They were willing to sell a precious pearl in order to obtain the kingdom. Here is a person who hears the good news of the kingdom. Here's the instruction of the gospel. Here's the truth of God and attacks and wants nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second illustration is of a swine, of a swine. Now, who are the pigs? Well, we we find out 
from the second half of verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. The phrase, lest they trample them under their feet, has to do with the swine. It's modifying the swine. Who are swine? Swine are people who trample the pearls under their feet. Now, growing up on a farm, these farm images to me are very vivid. Pigs are filthy animals. That's why we call people pigs who are filthy, who are unkempt, who, uh, well, anyway, pigs tend to, to root in the mud. They, they, they put this nose that faces like this and down into the mud and the dirt looking for food. Now, why do they do that? Because pigs are unlike any other animal I know. Most animals will guard their food. They will protect that area of the pen or that area of the cage or that area of their confinement to preserve their food. They won't defecate on their their food. They won't walk through their food. They won't grind their food into into the mud. But pigs are not like that. They don't treat the area of their pig pen that has food in it any different from any other area of their pig pen. And as a result, they trample their food even into the ground. That's why I have to go rooting after it. And here is the imagery of they take these pearls that they should value, they should separate, they should look at with great fondness, and they just trample on them like pigs do. The second illustration is of the danger, and this one refers to the dogs. Notice in verse 6, lest they trample them under their feet, that's the swine, and turn and tear you to pieces, that's the dogs. That's the ferociousness, these, these dogs. Rather than appreciating your coming to them and sharing the gospel with them, rather than appreciating your, your concern for their spiritual well-being, these dogs are going to turn on you. And they're going to lash out. And they're going to rip you to shreds. They're going to persecute you. They're going to reject you. They are going to think less of you because you have shared the gospel with them. They aren't going to be thankful. In fact, just the opposite. Just the opposite. So we need to be discerning in sharing the gospel with others. How are we to practice that discernment in sharing the gospel with others? Well, I would submit to you two things that we are to take away from this passage. Really, really three. First, most importantly, 
The real issue with a non-believer is not their immoral lifestyle. You can't transform and make a non-believer moral. They don't have the capability. It's not within them. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is going to transform an individual. You're going to get nowhere by singling out specific areas of grievances that you may have, particular areas of their life that you may find to be unacceptable, inappropriate, and they very well may be inappropriate. That's not the issue. But the point is that their greatest need, no matter what their lifestyle is, no matter how sinful, no matter how horrific, the greatest need is for a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's what you need to share with them. The good news. And not harangue them about their particular area of sinfulness. But you need to share with them the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. And if they come to Christ, that's going to be dealt with. If they come to Christ, the Spirit of God is going to work and move. Even as the Spirit of God has worked and moved in our life. So share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they reject that gospel, if they want nothing to do with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they, in fact, have one of two responses. One, treat it as common, ordinary stuff and just trample it underfoot. If they reject the word of God, if they don't believe that the Bible is God's truth, if they won't accept that God has spoken through his word, you really don't have anything on which to stand. You can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. And secondly, some people actually turn on you. And they become incensed. They become angered. They become this vicious dog. And the scripture says, well, you let them alone. You let it up to the Spirit of God. I say this in somewhat measured statement here. For you think of the Apostle Paul who trampled underfoot the Word of God in a sense the testimony of of Stephen and others, and uh, certainly was vicious in actually imprisoning believers and causing people's death in persecution. So someone is not beyond hope. We should never go there. No one is ever beyond hope. We should never give up on anyone. But at the same point, It was the sovereign intervention of God that brought Paul to faith. We can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't convert individuals. There may be a time for us to say, I've given them the gospel. 
I've made it as clear as I can. They know the way of salvation. And it's only creating now a distance between us. It's only raising animosity. They only are getting more and more angry with me. It's probably time to be quiet. But not a time to give up. A time to be quiet. You can still pray for them. You can still bring them before the throne of grace. You can still long that they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at that point, the scripture teaches us, better to be silent. Better to be silent. Conclusion. Don't be critical and fault-finding. Don't be quick to point out other people's faults. Concentrate on your own. Don't be quick to be one who gives a lot of spiritual advice and counsel in trying to help your poor, poor brother and sister to develop more in godliness and living. Now I say that, and the scripture teaches us that you know, we should be desirous of being a teacher of the word of God. That, that's, that's important. But it also teaches us in the book of James that uh, we should not be quick to be a teacher. And uh, we're going to receive a greater judgment by being a teacher. But in our personal relationships, in our personal relationships, just don't freely give unsolicited advice. Wait for people to come to you and seek your help, seek your counsel. And then be discerning. Discerning, first of all, from those that you listen to. Secondly, discerning about how you are going to share the gospel with someone else. If they reject the gospel and the offer of the kingdom, there is little you can do to help them. And if you do try to help them, it probably won't turn out well. Jesus refused to stay where he was rejected. Not all unbelievers are dogs. Some unbelievers will listen. They may not immediately come to faith, but they welcome your interaction. They treat you kindly and with respect if you treat them with respect. And they welcome the dialogue. If you have a situation like that, go for it. Try to develop it. Try to foster it. Try to nurture it. And share with them all the pearls of wisdom and truths of the kingdom that we have. But if they trample it under feet, if they are vicious, if they attack you, then hold your peace and continue to pray for them. Judge not, that you be not judged. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, help us to, first of all, practice ourselves everything that your word teaches us. May we be primarily concerned about living our own life of righteousness before we try to help other people live righteous lives themselves. 
And Lord, help us to live the kind of life that people seek us out, that people want our advice and counsel. And Lord, help us to have the restraint and the humility to wait for people to come to us in seeking that advice or counsel and not be quick to run up and volunteer to remove a speck from somebody else's eye. Lord, uh, help us to practice discernment, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. May we be forward with the gospel. But we also, Lord, may we recognize the futility if the Spirit of God is not working. And may we never, ever try to bring about a moral transformation apart from the gospel, for we know it's ludicrous. Lord, uh, bless your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.